Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hi, and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio, and today is uh, Friday, May the 19th, 2023, and Dr. Tim is off for the next week, and so he asked me to play. This is uh, pre-recorded here, Prater Van, from May the 8th, 2023. Enjoy. Pierre Pratervan studied at the universities of Geneva, Bern, and the University of Ann Arbor before receiving a doctorate in sociology from La Sorbonne University in Paris. A true world citizen, Pierre has labored most of his life for social justice, living, working, studying in, or visiting 40 countries on every continent. From his Geneva home, Pierre is now active as a writer, speaker, and life coach, helping people live simpler, yet richer, more contented lives. He provides personal development tools that empower attendees to strengthen their internal anchors and advance on their spiritual path. Pierre is an independent celebrant for weddings, burials, and other events. He's the author of more than 20 books, including The Gentle Art of Blessing, 365 Blessings to Heal Myself and the World, and his most recent book, The Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment. And I'm excited to spend some time and let you talk to our audience about your new book and, and, and what brought you to, to write it. So unless you have any questions for me, I'll just take a breath and get centered and we'll act like we just met and I'll say hello and, and launch into asking you about your new book. Okay. Well, uh, I was brought up in a very strict uh, Calvinist family and church and everything was so rigorous and the whole the whole theology was dominated by this concept of sin or so it seemed to me uh, this wasn't so much my father my father was a wonderful wonderful man who of whom I have kept the most incredible positive souvenir but it was the church and the parish and, and all that stuff and in 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 the high school, in the college, there was a, a biblical group that was, oh, so closed. And we were praying for our fallen brethren, you know, all those who was, weren't in the Bible group. <laughs> These were fallen brethren. I mean, it was so pathetic. And then I did two years theology and completely quit the whole stuff. And for 10 years, I, I, wandered in sort of spiritual desert 
And I came to Ann Arbor to prepare my doctorate. And there I was going to three different groups, the, the Quakers, and uh, a remarkable group that few people remember. It was called the Word of God. And I don't know if you remember, in the 70s and 80s, there was an incredible, no, there's, yes, the late, late 60s and early 70s, a, a tremendous revival in Christian churches all around the United States. And, uh, and this petered off. But it started with four young students at the University of Michigan praying that the Spirit would defend, descend on the campus. And when I arrived, it was one of the largest uh, student movements on campus in Mich Michigan, the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor was a very large university. And when I left, it was the largest student movement on campus. And it was just amazing. I remember hearing somebody speaking in tongues in that, in that movement. And I can still see the person, hear what he says in tongues. And it's the most beautiful music I've ever, ever heard in my life. Ever. The most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. And immediately after, somebody translated what he had said into normal English. And it was fabulous. And then I started going also to a spiritual healing movement. And I was a total hypochondriac at the, at the stuff. At the, at the time, I'd grown up in a family where the family doctor was a sort of little little god and totally dependent on medicine. And I was hearing these testimonies of students, you know, breaking their, breaking their leg and walking quite normally after three days without anything on their leg whatsoever. And these were amazing testimonies. And I started going to this group regularly and then belonged to the movement for a good many years. But it was, was something called Christian Science. And uh, I stayed a long time because of the healing and had myself very many amazing healings. But I left finally because it was so closed and they had the sense of being the highest revelation in history. And boy, that is so terrible. Such a weight. So I left and then I, I, uh, I won't say wandered, but I didn't belong to any movement of any sort, but I was still a very keen spiritual seeker. And now I think I found my, my own practice of spirituality. But I've started in the last two years attending the Quaker group in, in Geneva because I just so love staying one hour in silence in a group. It's not at all the same as having silence in your own room in the morning. I have a lot of that. But silence in a group has a kind of substance that I love dearly. But I'm, I'd say I'm my own spiritual seeker. I cannot uh, declare a sort of statement of faith as many big religions have. But I had one, I had two experiences, I'd say mystical experiences, that are the basis of my spirituality. 
and I, I don't know if I shared them in my earlier uh, talks with you. One was on a plane, this experience of love. Well, maybe I'll, I'll, exp I'll, I'll re repeat them in any case, because as you ask me what my spiritual practice is, this is the basis. I was coming back from Africa, uh, where I was one of the co-founders of what was in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, the, the largest grassroots peasant movement in the whole of Africa, called the 6S movement in the Sahel. And I was one of the founding members, and I enjoyed the, our, the meetings of the um, governing body, of which I was a member. And... Uh, the last day of the meeting, I caught dysentery. Now, at the beginning, it's not a problem. If you, if you don't take care of it, it can become serious. But I was working with my metaphysical formulas, my statements, as I usually did when I had any physical problem instead of running to the doctor. And it seemed to have calmed down in the evening, but the next day, going to the airport, it started over, over again. And on the plane, I was sitting next to a young, unaccompanied boy, studying my, my mantras, my texts, my prayers, and all the things I usually do in, in such cases. And the stewardess taking care of the little boy was so loving. I'm just a, one who thought she was his mother. She always came to check if he was okay. And at one moment, she came to speak to him in especially, I'd say, tender way. And I felt for this woman an incredible gratitude, which some suddenly became literally a cosmic gratitude. And then I had an out-of-body experience. I'm sure you know what that is. Yes. I was no longer in the plane. I was in a space where there was only the most incredible, unconditional love. Love was the only power, the only law, the only presence, the only substance, the only reason of everything. And was just phenomenal. I don't know how, how long it lasted because I was out of time, out of space. And the most wonderful thing is that Pierre Pradovan had completely disappeared. I had no sense whatsoever of having an ego, a little Swiss passport and all that. I was just one with this incredible love, which was the solution to all problems. And then suddenly I came back in the plane. I felt something move in my lower stomach and my entrails, and the dysentery disappeared in a matter of seconds. But the real healing was my vision of the world. And the next, the next uh, mystical experience, the second one, was just a couple of years ago, I was reading a book by the American mystic uh, Joel Goldsmith. I'm sure you've heard of him. Yes. And he was a very prolific writer and speaker at the time he was alive, traveled all over the world. And I was reading, rereading for the fourth time his book, simply called uh, Spiritual Healing, the Art, the Art of Spiritual Healing. And there's one place in the book where he speaks of uh, he, he'd uh, received 30, 35 calls for assistance the evening before and uh, 
that morning and he was in his office in town and he constantly had patients all day long, including between 12 and noon and one o'clock. And he looked into his uh, agenda and for the first time ever, he did not have one single appointment between 12 and one o'clock. And he thought, oh, it's up there that they've organized this, you know, the uh, divine will right. to organize this. Why? For what reason? And he thought, well, it's just to plunge into silence. And he plunged into silence. And when he came out of it an hour later, he received calls over the next moments from almost every single person who does for help in the past uh, past uh, uh, the present afternoon and evening and uh, they'd, they'd almost every single one had been healed and he did not work for one single one of them he just went into the silence and, yes and so he explains this and uh, it touched me so deeply. I thought, oh, I would so like to get into this quality of silence. And so I just plunged into silence and had another amazing experience. Suddenly I was in a space of just perfect harmony and joy and beauty lots of greenery and just quotes heaven or perfection whatever you want to call it and of course <coughs> again the ego had completely depicted. and there was just this sense of all pervading harmony saying Pierre that's where it really is at that's real reality and I came back, I don't know how long later. And uh, and I've just stayed with this ever since. So that is, I'd say these two experiences, uh, my basic sense of spirituality, that everything is governed by love, and love is the fundamental law of the universe, both in general terms and in individual terms and a sense that behind the material veil of things there is only perfect harmony and Joel Goldsmith was an amazing healer because he says that when he started working for something for someone let's say he receives a phone call the first thing he does is forget the name of the person who called him and the problem they were calling about and he just plunged into the silence and contact a sense of perfection and people were healed he had and, that is, and that is very similar to what the you were doing for years with your Christian science work yes but I didn't do it for other people right at all right but you were, that's what what you were doing for yourself and I was doing for myself but then the movement was very narrow and exclusive and that's what I couldn't put up with and that's why I left 
Joel Goldsmith didn't belong to any movement. Right. He created his own his own teaching called The Infinite Way. And he's got a book called The Infinite Way and, and many other books of his that anyone can find on internet. But what I loved is that he said he completely forgot the name of the person who called him and what the problem was. And just <coughs> went into this sense of perfection where everything is already okay. And contact, contacted that that level of being so concretely that automatically the person was healed. I, he's the only person I, I mean, I study, I, I receive every day, I receive every text of his on internet. I say, uh, I don't belong to any movement, religion of any sort, but I do follow and study the words of because he speaks very strongly to me. That's all. And you decided to write this book to help others, if they're going out on their own spiritual path, to have some kinds of general guidelines, the things, pitfalls to avoid and tools they might use. And one of the uh, things that strikes me is that you talk about the um, spiritually transmitted diseases. <laughs> I thought that was quite cute. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they're basically the, the pitfalls to watch out for. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, the main thing, I think I'd like to say is that there, there is no rigid path, no sick, fixed path. Religions are all, every single religion is a human construction, a social construction. Jesus never leave any guidelines for any kind of structure. And when I, when one studies the history of the church, one can see how the, the church uh, until the third century was there was no really rigid organization of any sort. And then uh, in any movement, you have people who take positions of power, of guidance, of dominance. And uh, the early members of these early churches thought they would like to organize this a little more rather than having little groups here and there. And the church developed, and they developed their own criteria of who could become a member and who could not, which had nothing to do, or very, very little, with the teachings of Jesus. So churches were a purely human construction, and I say this with great respect. My father, bless him, was for a quarter of a century the general secretary of the World Presbyterian Alliance, as it was called at that time. And he visited churches all around the globe. And uh, he wrote, he was amazing. Wherever he was, he would write a handwritten email letter back to the family. And uh, this was amazing because it had deep impact on me. You know, I, I was raised in a nice little bourgeois family in suburban Geneva, with a lovely garden and great peace and no problems of any sort. Uh, and uh, he'd send these letters 
Now remember, as of today, our mother always used to read them standing up in the kitchen when we came back from school. And uh, I still remember the letter he wrote from Mexico City saying he'd been in a part of the city where no girl above 12 was a virgin because they were all prostituting themselves to earn money for families which lived in utter and dire poverty. And wow, that was one of my greatest awakenings in life, realizing that didn't everybody didn't, didn't live didn't in... Didn't live the way you did, yeah. ...hampered little, living in sweet little Geneva, peaceful Switzerland. No, some people had a hell of a life. And I think these letters of my father, um, of our father, woken, awoke me to the world and made me, there were the first buddings of becoming a world citizen. Which you've certainly done in uh, over 40 countries and... Exactly. And, uh, you know, five or more and continents. Very different cultures. I mean, 12 years in Muslim cultures, in Arabic culture, black African culture, which are very, very totally different from our nice little middle-class Switzerland. So I'm grateful and I've lived, lived in the United States. Uh, I lived 10 years in England. And these are very, very different cultures too. And as you're talking about in the book, you decided to write this book because uh, you've become more and more aware and without you know, actual hard statistics, but it's your awareness that fewer people are flocking to the churches and um, more and more people are pursuing their spiritual path on their own. Exactly. I mean, it's so evident that, at least in, this, in Europe, the churches are more and more empty. And I, I believe, as I say in the book, that sooner or later, organized religions will disappear with a possible... Uh, exception of uh, Judaism for very specific reasons because it is totally tied to a, a people and a territory and maybe Islam will be one of the large religions which will probably resist by and large I think we are evolving as everybody is aware towards ever higher levels of consciousness and one one will be that Nobody can tell you what right living is. You are the only one to be able to find it out for yourself. If it's authentically you. Now, many people live chained to, to beliefs and structures their whole life because they haven't been able to free themselves from these structures. Well, and, you know, what, what you said about your upbringing was similar to mine in, in the way that I had a very nice family, very loving parents, and my parents and my grandparents were all of the same Roman Catholic religion. So there was a whole level at which the only thing I had been exposed to was that Roman Catholic religion. It's like what you were talking about with the Christian science movement. Um, the only people they allow in their churches are the Christian science speakers that are on a circuit and um exactly. and 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 they 
it it gets to be you know this restrictive thing the uh inbred totally the, inbred the, the the Roman Catholic movement was so rigid when I was growing up that they they told us don't even read the Bible because you'll misinterpret it. Just go to the priest and ask questions. And I remember several times in school I would go and ask the nuns, and they'd say, "Oh, we can't answer that. We have to ask Father." Right. So it's it was all this very narrow funneling of this one kind of a mindset. So by the time I went to college, I. All I knew of, basically, was uh, the Roman Catholic Church. I didn't know anything about the Jewish people or their religion. I didn't know anything about the Muslims. And so up until that time, even though I was very much um, desiring to be a good person and to be in alignment with whatever was divine, I had some very, very narrow definitions for what that might be. And boy, did it explode once an education arrived. And when that happens, um, I think it's a wonderful thing to have a book like yours to give someone some, some you know, like yeah, the guardrails. Yeah, they are, they're just the guardrails on, on the highway, right? They don't tell you which exit to get off of, but they keep you from going off a bridge or, you know, cool. in some horrible danger. And um, And some of the tools that you mentioned. Um, you know, I, I, I think that lately the word intention has been a big theme that's come across in the work that I've been doing on the Internet show and in the, our support groups. And you've got a wonderful story about intention with uh, Mohan. Yes. Uh, can, you, can, parala, you share, can you share a little bit about your thoughts about intention and how that story weaves into that. Well, for me, uh, my intention is just to be love one day, just to express love in everything, in every thought. I have a little saying I go over quite a few times during the day. Creator, bless my mind that every one of my thoughts may come from love. Bless my ears that I hear everything through the channel, the listening of love. Bless my eyes that all I see may be seen with love and bathed in love. Bless my mouth that my every thought, every, every word come from love. Bless my heart that I may give and receive love. Bless my hands that everything I touch feels loved and everything I do is done with love. And bless my feet that I may walk with love and peace upon the earth. That's the uh, something I like to repeat during the day, and I'd say it's the summary of my spirituality. It helps. It's not, I believe, it's not I believe in this or that, it's applied love. I mean, that's and, the only and, way. And it helps you keep your intention of course. focused. Of course. And, and again, I'd, I'd like to repeat that I'm a, I'm a student and still in the in the 
in the first grade primary school of spiritual path. Just a little learner. But what I have learned, learned has given such joy and depth to my life. I want to continue. Well, and as you talk about in the book, the more you learn, the more you realize how little you know. Yes. That there's, you know, great expanses like the When you have an experience like you did on the plane or like you did when um, reading the Joel Goldsmith work, you realize there aren't even any words for what you've tapped into and just touched, you know. Exactly. Exactly. And so intention is so important that um, can you relay the story of uh, Mohan and Sarala? Oh, it's one of my favorite, favorite stories. Uh, thanks for asking me, Tim. Uh, there was a seeker in India who was called Mohan, who worked. Finally, he, for many years, he uh, sought for a teacher that could really get him on the road. And finally, he found one, and he stayed with him many years, working in his fields in the master's fields, keeping the cows in the day, as was the, was the tradition, and studying at the feet of the master when he... when uh, he's... In the evening time, right. In the evening. And one day the master passed on, and uh, Mohan hit the road again, uh, looking for right teacher. And one day he arrives in a village completely exhausted and famished, practically collapses, and the village villagers take care of him, putting back him into big sh- into good shape. And as they had no Brahmin in the village, they asked Mohan if he would stay in the village, that they would take care of him, and that he would be able to teach the young people. And Mohan is delighted with this proposition and he does just that and there was young one young man in the village called Sarala who had decided that Mohan was the teacher he was seeking for for his whole life and he would do all the errands he could to for Mohan and he would always be prowling around Mohan's hut to the the point that it really irritated Mohan, who thought Sarah was a rather simplistic fellow. He'd never get very far spiritually. And unknown, uh, unbeknownst to, to Mohan, Sarah slept on the doorstep of uh, Mohan's uh, hut because what he was awaiting was the famous mantra, you know, the mantra in India is something very, very important on the spiritual path. And everybody, every serious student receives the mantra from his from his teacher. And Mohan wakes up in the middle of the night and feels the need to go to the toilet, which was just in the fields, of course. And his foot hits Sarala on, on the doorstep. And uh, Sarala wakes up and jumps up and Mohan, really irritated, say, 
go out of the village. First, you. first thing he says, always you, always you. Go out of the village and don't come back until I call you. And Sarala is quite convinced that the always you is the famous mantra he'd been waiting. And he runs out of the village, his heart singing with joy, always you, always you. And he travels for days, for weeks, for months, for years with nothing else in his mind but always you, always you, always you. And one day he arrives uh, in a village where a widow has just lost her only son, a teenager. And in India, the situation of women, of widows, has always been very difficult. And uh, especially if they had no other children. This was her only son. And they put a pyre. I think you say pyre where you burn people. Right. And uh, he was on top of the pyre and uh, and Sarah arrives and the people feel something so special in this man. He radiates a, a light, a gentleness and they ask him could you could you pray for the resurrection of this boy? And Sarala says, look, I've never re- resurrected anyone, but I can repeat the mantra my teacher Mohan taught me. And unbeknownst to Sarala, he'd made a circuit of thousands of kilometers in India. It was just a few miles from his home village. And so he settled at the foot of the pyre and just plunges into this always you always you and suddenly the boy sits up totally surprised to be on this par and he climbs down and the whole village shouts miracle miracle and they all bring a few pennies a necklace a piece of jewelry a tiny piece of gold whatever they had and put it at the feet of of Sarala. And Sarala says, my friends, it is not me you must thank. It is my teacher, Mohan, who taught me this mantra. And as I said a moment ago, the village was very close to Mohan's village. And the villagers run off to Mohan. And they all uh, arrive at the same time at his house. And they're all shouting and explaining and Mohan can't understand anything. And he says, all he gets is that one of his students supposedly had raised uh, someone from the dead. Right. He knew perfectly well he was totally incapable himself of doing anything like that. And he couldn't think of any one of his students who would ever be capable of this. And so he asked the villagers, what is the student's name? They say Sarala. And suddenly, one remembers he had a student years ago called Sarala, and he tells them, go and tell Sarala that I'm awaiting him. And the, the, the villagers all 
run back. Sarala had left. He was on the road, but it was very easy to catch him up. And villagers tell Sarala, your teacher, Mohan, are calling for him. Right. And you remember, Mohan had told, told right. Sarala, never come Don't back. Come after back. That. I call you. <laughs> oh, for him, it was the perfect day, the day of illumination. His teacher had called him back. And he rushes, well, he hurries back to, to Mohan and falls at the feet of Mohan. And Mohan gently raises him up. And he says, the villagers tell me that you raised a young boy from the dead. Oh, master, I did nothing but repeat the mantra you told me, always you. And suddenly, Mohan remembers that famous night. He, he hears on him. <laughs> yell in anger when he trips on Sarala, always you, go from village and never come back until I call you. And here he was, and in moment of Incredible humility, maybe the first in his life, on falls at the feet of Sarala and looks up to his face and says, Master, teach me. That's my favorite spiritual story. All about intention. Yes. And it's a, it's, it's a beautiful tie-in to your little prayer of bless my thoughts bless my ears, bless my eyes and my mouth, because if I'm choosing to see through the eyes of love and to hear everything through the filter of love, that's essentially what Sarala did. Well, and the book has some wonderful stories. It's a, it's a rather brief book for your standards, but it is a, um, a beautiful uh, collection of these stories. What's another part of the book that you'd like to highlight for us as we talk about the tools and or the, the spiritually transmitted diseases or? Well, uh, I, you know, I coined this terms uh, spiritually transmitted diseases uh, because there are so many of them. You see, we are in a world as never before. So many teachings and paths and in all areas. And Byron Katie has said so rightly, 40 years ago, that the main problem in our society is not war or hunger or fighting in groups or political dissent. It's confusion. And I feel that I, this, this is a woman I admire greatly. I followed a workshop with her once in Geneva, and she's a, really for me the, I don't know if one says in English, the great dame of personal development in the United States, one of the greatest figureheads for me. And uh, that statement is so, so true of our world. That's why I, and so many people, are confused in all areas, including spirituality. And that's why I, one of the reasons I wrote this book is to give very simple guidelines 
to people so as that they could find their own spiritual path. For some it would mean joining a movement, and for others it would just be, like it has been for me now for years, following their own spiritual intuition. But of course, I spend a lot of time, I spend every morning, normally at least an hour and a half, preparing spiritually for the day. And then constantly through the day, trying to remind myself to come back to love, as in the little story I told a little moment ago. So, uh, for me, it's, it's so simple. True, true spirituality is so, so simple. And when you read the gospel, you know, Jesus developed, didn't develop any kind of theology of any sort. He gave very simple statements, you know, and left us incredible promises, but always so simple. Simplicity can help as an antidote to your confusion. Absolutely. Of course. And the big thing that what I get from your book that comes across so clearly is that, and you, you talk about how the religions are primarily based on looking outside yourself to some kind of an authority figure. Exactly. And, and that what you're recommending is kind of a, a series of guidelines people can use to find their way in exactly. to the guidance that's going to come from their own heart center. To be their own authority. And when I say to be their own authority, I'm not pampering the ego because this because this happens when the ego has been reduced to its smallest dimension. And then when you become your own authority, it's not to the ego of Pierre Pradovan, for instance. It's to the highest vision Pierre has, and that is one of infinite love. Yeah, and you talk about that as necessarily feelings-based, not yes. thought-based. Oh, absolutely, because I was I was brought up in a religion we had to believe things this way and that. And it was all on the level of mind. And uh, nothing on the level of the heart. I hardly ever heard the word heart pronounced. And for me, it is the center of authentic spirituality. It is in the heart. Not in there. So two things. Can you adjust your camera a little bit so we can see the full facial right. expression? And then uh, can you just get centered for here and, and think if we're running uh, close to the end of our time, what other point or a couple points do you want to make uh, to try and uh, um, kind of whet people's appetite for this book, The uh, the Gentle Art of discernment for your spiritual well it's I would say I live more and more in a permanent sense of gratitude not only because I live in a peaceful country I have a lovely little, little apartment in a beautiful little garden you know I have 
I earn a very, very modest income, but it's sufficient. That's a choice I made. It's sufficient to live the simple life, which has been my ideal for close to 60 years now. And uh, I find constantly opportunities for gratitude and expressing appreciation. So often I would say to self-good in a supermarket, thank her for that, her smile or her gentleness. I thank the bus driver for having driven us safely. And people are not used to that. And uh, I remember a sales uh, lady to whom I said something especially nice. I, I, I don't remember exactly, but she said, in 30 years of, in the job, nobody has ever said something like that to me. So a simple word of appreciation, so, so limitless. And you don't know what it can mean to someone. And it can become a sort of support, trying to find opportunities to, to, uh, to express appreciation. And of course, it always comes from the heart and never from the mind. So I live in, in constant gratitude because, I, I mean, really, hour by hour, a little while I was in my garden, I had lunch in my garden, and I felt such gratitude because it's a beautiful day and everything was quiet and green and just, you can invent so many opportunities to say thank you and to feel grateful. Well, and I I hear in my mind, as I've had several times over the years, many, many times over the years, when I talk about that or somebody else talks about that, that the ego or the other uh, chattering mind wants to say, well, yeah, but that's because you have this beautiful apartment and this simple life and it's peaceful. And yet you have firsthand experience with some dark night of the ego um you know a lot of people call it dark night of the soul but from the way of mastery it talks about it's not really the dark night of the soul it's the awakening of the soul and it's the dark night of the ego exactly. and and you talk about people like uh, roger mcgowan and how he's had uh, really extraordinarily challenge and abusive challenging and abusive situations and he's learned the benefit of practicing gratitude and your exactly. blessing practice Exactly. So it's not an empty thing that is useful only if my life is going well. It's a very powerful tool for the darkest times as well. Exactly. Exactly. How, did, had, how did you I've come had my to dark times like everybody? And I you mean, talk about that some in this book. Thirteen years ago, I was crazy enough to leave the most wonderful woman in the world, my wife, and I went through absolute total hell for four years i was in a deep depression and today i have again very good warm relations with this this person who is the person i admire most on the whole planet because she runs the foundation for women and children at 83 world campaigns it's just incredible so i say all i can say now for everything is thank you thank you thank you thank you How do 
how did you first uh, come to know of Roger McGowan? How did you get involved with him? Well, it's very simple. In 1996, one of his correspondents in Zurich contacted me at the suggestion of a friend of hers. And I don't know at all why she contacted me. I don't know why this gentleman gave her my name. I'd never heard of Roger McGowan. I'd never had anything to do with the death penalty. And uh, the Texas Department of Criminal Justice had just fixed a date of execution to put him to death. And she'd been corresponding with him for years. And she thought, that cannot be. That cannot be. And uh, she she started uh, looking for people to contribute to the hiring of a lawyer. And the stories she told me touched me so deeply, I put a, a few thousand, I think $3,000 into her account so that we could hire a lawyer. And she managed to put off the date of execution, but not the death penalty. And I started corresponding with Roger because the story she told me moved me so much. And immediately our correspondent correspondence took on a very special light for me. And after two, three years, I thought, I can't keep these letters for myself. They belong to the cultural heritage of humanity. And I have an extraordinary publisher really amazing man who's never refused a single manuscript I've presented in in 25 years. And he accepted to publish a book that was totally out of anything he'd ever published. And the book was a real success. People started sending in money. One woman sent in $50,000 just from reading that book. So deeply she was touched. Is that book the messages of life from death row? Exactly. And uh, so we were able to hire uh, a good lawyer who uh, got him off death row. And because he was able to, the lawyer was able to challenge the death penalty. And, uh, and now he's in another prison. And he's changing a prison of 2,500 inmates. And over the years, this book has had such an incredible impact. I received some time ago a letter from, from Thailand, from an African inmate in the Bangkwang Central Prison, which is the worst prison in, in Thailand. And he'd been incarcerated there also, as he tells me, for a crime he had not committed. And he was at the depth of depression, the depth of hell. And now tell me, by what miracle he find Rogers, finds Rogers' book in French in Bangkwan Central Prison in Thailand. Only the somebody up there, as I say in French, on the first floor would be able to explain. And that book totally transformed him pulled him out completely out of his state of depression. And he wrote to me, and now he has different correspondence, and uh, there's been a sort of amnesty, and a friend of mine who corresponds with him still now told me he just out of prison. 
But what was impact, amazing was the impact of Roger's book. And I see Roger, I've been visiting him every single year since 1999. And he has become one of my two closest friends. And a spiritual teacher to many. Absolutely, and to me also. A spiritual example. When we first met in the early century, he used to say, Pierre, you... You pulled me forward, and now the roles have been reversed for quite a few years. He pulls me and many, many others forward. Wonderful. And, and of I course, you, you mentioned him in, uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned him in the Gentle Art of Blessing, but certainly in uh, the 365 Blessings to Heal Myself yes. in the World. Yes. And... Um, and all three of these books, The Gentle Art of Blessing, 365 Blessings to Heal Myself in the World, and your newest book on spiritual, The Gentle Art of Spiritual Discernment, is uh, due to be released um, in July of this year, 2023. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. And, uh, and the next few books you write, it's <laughs> your moves too. That will come. My my next book, as a matter of fact, I started this morning, will be uh, Living Without Judging. I'm writing it in French. I don't know if I'll find an American publisher, but it's a topic that's very close to my heart. And one that I live completely, I've, I live literally without judging. Because... And it's so simple once you found the not the trick but the the attitude. tool. It's a tool. The tool. Uh, the tool is to realize that every single person, including Trump and Putin, are at their highest level of judgment, given the circumstances of their life, their past history, and everything. So when you really see that, well, you. You cannot judge anymore. Well, and uh, especially when you have some insight, you have some experience to, you know, those, you said, out-of-body experience or those spiritual experiences. When you get an inkling that there is so much more going on here than you yeah. have any idea about, then you realize at a new level how silly it is to judge. Exactly. Because because you, you have nothing really to, to base it on except... Uh, this very limited sphere of, of perception. Exactly. And I'm excited to hear about that book. We've been talking about this idea of judgment. I was interviewing a young woman who's written several, a couple of really nice books about uh, her ending her addictive process and putting together a healthy, vibrant life. And in the second interview, I found myself talking about um, this addiction we have to judging and how um, for every other addiction, we realize whatever the drug that we really need to abstain from it. And so uh, what would it be like for me to abstain from judging? You know, we're talking about that. What kind of tools can I put in place to help myself recognize when I've judged and then choose to release it? Yes. So I'm, I'm, I will look forward to your book with uh, great relish. Good. 
have you got a closing blessing for us that we can uh, we can send people off with? Uh, one of your favorite? I'll compose one now. I don't have, you know. I was thinking. Power. I was thinking. Do you remember the the one for this, the the blessing you have in the book for spiritual seekers? No, I don't remember. You know, out of three hundred and sixty-five blessings. I <laughs> well, so if you would be so kind. Uh, could you compose a blessing for us to end today? I bless you in your listening to the guidance from above. I bless you in the deep sincerity of your quest for finding your own spiritual path. I I bless you in your deep understanding that whatever the path you choose, it starts by loving yourself unconditionally. Whatever the path, be it a special brand of Sufism or some esoteric Christian or Buddhist branch of this or that movement before anything else your path your first path is one of learning to love yourself because when you love yourself you let go of so many weights that could hamper your search for your own spiritual path, your own spiritual teaching. May you be blessed, infinitely blessed, as you are on your path. There we are. Well, thank you so much. And may you be blessed in your path and your intention and your uh, prolific writing, which has blessed us all. I am, Tim. Thank you for this moment of sharing. Goodbye. Thank you. Blessings. If you enjoyed that, that was a pre-recorded show uh, with Dr. Tim interviewing Pierre Pratervan in May, May the 8th. So that was just uh, about 11 days ago. So he's really a sweet soul. And uh, Dr. Tim will be gone, and so I'll be playing pre-recorded shows during his hour through next, not this coming Monday, but through the next Monday. And uh, so stay tuned and listen to him. He's got a great lineup. He sent me a list of, of who all to play. So be sure and tune in and listen to his hour. We'll give Michael just a moment to dial in. And... Uh, if you haven't gone to the website and picked up the pre-recorded shows from the book club, uh, they're starting over with the book and doing it one chapter at a time. So the first three chapters are out there uh, on our website if you click on Schedule and then go down to Global Book Club. And they'll be doing, um, let's see, it's the second and the fourth Thursday. So it'll be next Thursday they'll be doing Chapter 4. And so you can pick up those archives down on their website. And 
there's, uh, I was looking to see what other new links I had put out there, but I think I've announced all of them. I haven't had any questions from the app, but uh, we hope that you're putting that to use as well. We have Aria today, and she's actually going to spend the night with us tomorrow night, so we're going to be blessed with that. We do have Mind Shifters and Still Point Breathing. So that's tomorrow at 11 o'clock. We will do the Still Point Breathing, and we'll do some processing. And hopefully you've written your on your Mind Shifters prior to that. And then Sunday we will meet at 11 o'clock and do some more processing. So if you're not part of that group and you would like to join us, you can drop me a line at Jeannie, J-E-A-N-I-E, at whyagain.org. Or you can give us a call. And, you know, you can always, if you go to our website, there is a, uh, I was just trying to find it so I could tell you the exact place. Um, that's my computer's running slow today. Up at the... Just one second, sweetheart. So, uh, my apologies. My computer's just really running slow here. Up at the very top, there's um, about Michael, about Jeannie, and then there's Contact Us. And so if you click on Contact Us, it actually lists our phone numbers, and there's also the webmaster uh, website or the email. And so you can get a hold of us either of those ways. And we hope that hope that you uh, put all the tools to work. And Michael's with us now, so I am going to go over to the reading. We are reading a little bit at a time out of Michael Singer's book, The Untethered Soul. Yesterday we were talking about making the voice in your head, your inner roommate, and taking on the experiment of making them an outside person. And it said, we stopped with the question, will you dare to do this experiment? Don't try to make the person stop talking. Just try to get to know what you live with inside your head by externalizing the voice. Give it a body. Put it out there in the world, just like everybody else. Let it be a person who says on the outside exactly what the voice of your mind says inside. Now make that person your best friend. After all, how many friends do you spend all of your time with and pay absolute attention to every word that they say? How would you feel if someone outside really started talking to you the way your inner voice does? How would you relate to a person who opened their mouth to say everything that your mental voice says? After a very short period of time, you would tell them to leave and never come back. But when your inner friend continuously speaks up, you don't ever tell it to leave. No matter how much trouble it causes, you listen. There's always, there's almost nothing that voice can say that you don't pay full attention to. It pulls you right out of whatever you're doing, no matter how enjoyable, and suddenly you're paying attention to whatever it has to say. Imagine that you're in a serious relationship and are about to get married. You're driving to the wedding and it says, Maybe this is not the right person. I'm really getting nervous about this. What should I do? If someone outside of you said that, you'd ignore them. You feel you owe the voice an answer. You have to convince your nervous mind that this is the right person or it won't let you walk down the aisle. That's how much respect you have for this neurotic thing that's inside of you. 
You know that if you don't listen to it, it will bother you every day of your life. And, Michael, I'm going to turn it over to you for a moment because I hear a little girl yelling. I'm going to go see what's going on. Okay, sweetie, thank you. And welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here. And uh, wondering, and I'll ask Jeannie when she comes back, if uh, if Joe's on the line today, if you're out there, Joe, push one, and we'll get – I had actually thought about calling you and see if you would call in today because I wanted to – uh, put a different emphasis on the conversation that we had yesterday and honor the transition that you're making from the external world to the internal world. From And, and there's a point in everyone's life, actually, it's, it's interesting, in India, there is a, a principle where a man is called a householder and he does all the things that it takes to have a home and take care of his family, have children, go to work, do all the things that are there. And then when that family's raised, he leaves. And he goes on a pilgrimage. And the pilgrimage is one of facing the inner demons. And most people's lives are tied up in, oh, all the things that are going on in the world the politics, relationships, marriage, family, money, success, fame, fortune, all of those things. And the busyness in that arena means we don't have much space to deal with that inner structure that we call self that really is not self at all. And that the core tool for interacting with that inner self, which is a product of literally a thousand generations of unresolved dynamics, that's why that voice can be such a trauma for people. The self-doubt, the self-loathing, the playing out of the power person messages that were given to the child and when under extreme stress that inner voice comes out as an expression and the voice sounds like well gee this is my voice box but the voice is really the voice of the power person internally dissociated from it runs the game from the inside and becomes a major motivator for virtually everything that's done. And when you get to the point where you can let go of those external things and begin to deal with your internal dynamics, rather than having to gather wealth and money and fame and all of those things, the work becomes the inner journey, dealing with every rage, every fear, every guilt, every pen. I was talking with a gentleman this morning, and he's been around this work for, oh, probably 20 years or so. And he shared with me how, you know, he's got 
everything. He's got a peaceful life going. He's got everything handled in his life. And, you know, he's been working on being peaceful. I said, well, you were just telling me about some extreme back pain that you had. Well, yeah, that's just something physical. It's like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's, let's back up a little bit. A gentleman named Dr. John Sarno, who's a back surgeon, the last years of his practice, he was a, uh, a researcher at the University of Buffalo. He stopped using the scalpel and began to teach people what it was they really needed to deal with. And he has the best defini- definition of back pain that I've ever heard of, and that is that back pain is unconscious rage. And it, it was interesting because it's like I'm talking to two people. As I bring forward, well, you're telling me how you're at peace and everything's great, but now you've got all this back pain going on, and you know that your back pain has to do with your age, but you're telling me you're living in peace. Have you dissociated from a part of your mind that is now controlling a part of your physiology? Because there is no trauma in physiology unless there is trauma in the mind. There is no trauma in the mind unless it reflects as trauma in the physiology. And so I went back three or four rounds with him. Well, yes, but I'm at peace. Well, yes, that is my trauma. That's what's going on. But I, I don't need to do any forgiveness because I've already got, I'm already peaceful. It's like, well, your body's telling you that something different is true. So gave him the link. And if you're dealing with pain of any kind, this doesn't just apply to back pain. But basically, Dr. Sarno created a, uh, an acronym called TM, oh, wait a minute, TMS, Tension Mitosis Syndrome. And what he showed was that while the pain that we experience is physical and has a physical cause, the so-called physical cause is a reflection of what's going on in the mind. So tension mitosis syndrome means that when I don't want to deal with my pain, when I don't want to deal with my inner world, then I shut down awareness. And the way that I do that is I tighten muscles. And when those muscles tighten, it restricts blood flow. And when the blood flow is restricted, a 5% lack of oxygen to a cell means the cell is in excruciating pain. But it was a real challenge to get him to confront the fact that I'm not really at peace. I say that I am. I say that everything's serene around me, and you know, but my body's going nuts, like to the point where it was laying him down that he couldn't, you know, get out of bed. So this journey to the inside becomes a key, and most people, unfortunately, are inspired to do that journey to face their own denial, their own dissociation, their own hostility and fear. And they do that because they're motivated by pain. 
when you make a choice to do your work, then no longer are you motivated by pain. You're motivated by the presence of love and the willingness to do your work. So that becomes an important part of the process. And Ms. Jeannie, are you back with us? Yes, I am. And uh, Jadway is not on there unless there's a couple members just popped up. Let me double check. Um, But he wasn't on there just a second ago. Okay. I just thought it would be helpful to uh, expand that. You want me to turn on his microphone? Well, maybe Joel raised his hand and he's willing to talk about it. How that uh, that little piece I just did that fits for you, Joe? Press one, Joe. He did. Okay, eight six four. You're on the air. Hey, Joe. Hey there, sir. You hear me? Hey, you uh, is this the Joe you're looking for? I just I, I'm not sure. This is Joe Blow, isn't it? <laughs> oh, that! Oh, that! That—that's all there is right there. That, Got to be good, the right one. Good humor. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I didn't. I just jumped on here and I thought, wait a second. He's asking for Joe. I'm like, you know, I, I want—I—I I typically want my introduction, you know, to include, you know, all the all the a little more of the background else. and the history, <laughs> you know, the, the awards, the degrees, the, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, I, I didn't. Well, what, so you were you were talking about back pain, I guess, was it? Well, that's kind of the, was the end of the conversation. But the starting point and the reason I had I actually thought about calling you before the show and saying, "Hey, are you going to be on?" was with what oh, you shared okay. yesterday. It was just a, a uh, you know, as I ruminated on it, the the dividing line in your life of, you know, being focused on the external world and then moving into deeper and deeper levels of this internal work and Mm, how profoundly powerful that is and how life-changing it is. You know, I I remember back several weeks ago we were talking, it's like nothing in your world was important but getting down, listening to the videos, doing the worksheets and, and doing that inner work. And that's oh, yeah. really a, a, a shift from, you know, the external world and, you know, everything about accomplishment and what have you to really move into that other level. And, and I, I bring that up because most people, as I was saying, do this as a result of pain, motivated by pain, but we can do it motivated by choice and the process simply becomes a whole lot easier. And the more willing we are to go into those depths, the more willing we are to face, you know, Carl, Carl Jung says a man will do anything to keep from facing his own soul. Oh, yeah. And when you choose to face your own soul, you're facing the source of all trauma, drama, pain, and everything changes. It's just, you know, so that was kind of where I yep. uh, was thinking about checking in with you and, and inviting yeah, you back I, to the I conversation. Would, you know, my, my latest, my latest, uh, oh, what's the right word? My latest discovery is this idea of gaslighting, 
that that there's actually the in in my experience that there you know my experience was one where possibly I was doubting so much doubting my own reality because my uh dominant person would present it in such a manner as that you you should wait a minute you should question your sense of reality or your understanding of what's you know real because i don't think you have a good handle on it and it's like oh my gosh i don't i don't have a good handle on on my own well then what is you know then you turn and say okay well then you tell me what my reality is oh that's exactly what i want you to say i want you to ask me to tell you what your reality is and i will control you from here on out or from you know until the next time around not anything you've so ever that, tried to do with anyone in your life right what's that i never i say not anything you've ever done with anyone in your life right oh exactly no, right no. that's exactly the beauty of it is that you can the mirror the mirror gets held up and you're you know you look into the abyss and who do you see but i see myself and just oh wow and and so that and but but to to look into the abyss and like like you just said in terms of to look into um our soul like i think you said young you know it, it it's it's amazing right. how we've set up this extreme scariness or this fearful nature of Oh, I can't do that. I'll, I won't. I won't make it. Or, or you know, just so much, uh, so much fear, I guess, and the con- the con- the construction of that fearful, controlling nature that gets handed down. And there, and and once again, I find my, you know, wow, it's generational. We're not, you know, it's it's one generation after another. We're not just talking about my mother or my mother's mother. Who, who knows? So, how that song helps. title go? How long has this been going on? Oh, that's a beauty. It's a great song, but it, but it's about betrayal, or you know, yeah. the, the aspect of hey, wait a second, um, you can't be truthful with me, or and or I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that the way I understand I'm smarter than you. So therefore my reality is more correct than yours. I mean, it, 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 it's the, the, the latest discussion I had with someone was I want to stop the dog from barking at night. So I'm going to get a dog whistle. And when the dog whistle, when the dog barks at one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, I'll blow the whistle. And it will be an irritant, and the dog will, you know, hopefully add one and one. When I do this, this piercing sound of of negativity, shall we say, I will not persist in that behavior anymore. Right? That's gaslighting, isn't it? Well, That's the very definition of gaslighting. I'm going to override your reality with, with this irritant, with this attack, so that you'll stop functioning out of your reality. 
Yeah. And you look at the power so struggles. I mean, that's basically the power struggle of life. Instead of people having relationships where there's mutual support, mutual caring, and safety, and the inquiry to, to together go into this inner sanctum, this inner work, and mm-hmm. you know, be supported in, in looking there and being able to question yourself and see if you're gaslighting yourself. Everything based wow. on hostility yeah. or fear is the mind gaslighting us. Yep. Yeah. Any anything to question reality. Uh, I. It's just fascinating that. Wow. Just just you know get get real quiet. You know it's it's in the commitment. Get real quiet. Go into that quiet place, and listen, and and you know it's it it is revealed. To me, to us, and uh, you know the other aspect is the the doing thing. It's all you know. I got to do something. No, 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 I don't. I don't. So powerful. And you know, you you bring the point up. You mentioned the commitment to go into that inner sanctum and carry with you that commitment to yourself that whatever you find Mm -hmm. there, you're going to treat yourself lovingly, gently, and with respect, honor who you are, and bring forward the truth of who you are is another powerful component. It's it's like, it it, it literally is like rescuing the soul from darkness. Mm -hmm. That state of being that is the love that we are created of and bringing it into full expression within our own minds rather than being run by the yeah. uh, internal gaslighter. Yeah. Yeah. The uh so nice work. The, well, yeah, the, the willingness for personal responsibility. It's just it's, it's not that hard. It sure sure seems like it's hard. And I and I, you know, that that's another one of those well, let's make it hard because that way when we when we do achieve it, we look what we've done. Oh, look at, you know, this grandiose thing that I did. You know, it's like, well, it really wasn't, I don't know. Have you, have you looked at the chart on the physiological effects of emotional suppression lately? No, but I, we talked you about might want to take that one or, no, you were talking about tickler. Yeah. What, 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 uh, yeah. What was it again? Well, basically the physiological effects of emotional suppression. It's a chart where we look at, the thought disorders that literally shut the energy system down to the point where it dies. And the number one thought disorder, and the, you know, this is for most people the terror of going inside consciously and looking and questioning because very early, most every one of us was given a message by our power person, and the original message for most is, you're broken. There's something wrong with you. Yeah, you're not worthy. And who yeah. wants to feel that? Who wants to deal with that? Who wants to deal with the emotional uh, trauma of being told by, that by the person that's supposed to be there to support you and cherish you? Yeah. And then from there, you know, of course, that when, when we're designed to live, if you remember that chart, it starts out that we're designed to live in enthusiasm. In theos means in God, in love. 
We're designed to live in and as the presence of love. But as we're doing that and rolling along, and this God called a power person shows up and says, you're broken, you're never going to be fixed, you're never going to be worthy, that wound is monumental. And it's, it's the original wound that people pile on trauma after trauma, external focus after external focus in order to avoid it and not deal with that. And yet that is underlying virtually everything that surfaces in the mind about self until it's faced and forgiven. And, of course, when we start to, you know, when one moves from enthusiasm, where there is literally the physiological presence of joy, as the, you know, you look at the two-year-old child, and then the child is told they're broken and they lose connection to that love. And there's a lot of pain in that. And of course, what does the adult do when the child goes into pain? Were you ever given fed this line? I can remember it as a kid. You don't stop that crying. I'll give you something to cry for. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, excuse me. I have something to cry for. That's why I am crying. Yeah. So so now the child comes to the conclusion that even my pain, it isn't safe even to feel my pain. To be true and right. honest with myself, that, I'm hurting. This adult has to that. stop me and force me not to do this. Yes. You talk about suppression and survival. Now you're, you know, you, you know sympathetic and parasympathetic autonomic systems kicked in now. And you're just, exactly. you are in a position of complete, crisis and you're three four five six years old whatever it is and you're just trying to you know you're having trouble breathing <laughs> yeah you know? yeah exactly i mean it, it it's it, it's 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 a wondrous thing to have these conversations with you michael and Jeannie, because you guys you know and and the work that's coming around and, and that, that we've all done is just it's a real joyful thing to find myself and you know and that's not to say too of course that the the humbleness the grateful the the grace that that's full in the learning experience and the letting go and then finally in forgiveness and saying hey joe you are worthy you can forgive yourself for this Take take your next steps and, and move forward. Remove this from self. Move it. Yeah, yeah. Well, when you look it, at that chart, about, if you look at it, go ahead. No, you just talk about taking a breath and you know. <sighs> yeah. you know when you look breath. at that chart, you'll see on the right hand mm-hmm. side where it outlines the kinds of thought disorders that literally lock down and shut down the tissue that is the endocrine system that runs the whole energy field. And you see as people go, they're they're externally focused and unconsciously going deeper and deeper and deeper into that state of of self-destruction while struggling to keep focus on the outer world. And then if you move over to the left-hand side of the chart, you start at the bottom, there's the healing process laid out. So what do I face? I face this thought disorder. I face this, 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 this. And I remove those things and discover the truth of who I am as a human being. Yeah. I'm, I'm also also fascinated by, 
the the level of commitment that someone or that others have to to a a healing process, not the healing process. To a so in other words, I will. This is what I diagnosed for you. Here's what I think. You're bitter about this, this, and this. And it's like you're sitting there, I'm sitting there, and I'm listening to this, and I'm going, oh, my gosh, it's a mirror. I'm, again, this person has raised their mirror because it, their diagnosis goes through their filter. And, and it's like the reason you see the bitterness in me is because it's within you. And you experienced it. And, yes, yes, I accept and I'm willing to learn from you and your experience with that emotion. And can we walk together and, you know, forgive ourselves for the thinking that we're using now with regards to that, what's the right word, injury or misthinking misguided uh, understanding let's let's add I, insert I, when twice you've mentioned this idea mm-hmm. of forgive yourself and i'm going to say let's insert a word in there forgive from yourself because from the world's yourself, got yeah. this mistaken idea that forgiveness is about i need to let myself or you off the hook but it yep. isn't about forgiving myself. It's recognizing, oh, if I have this thought disorder, I apply forgiveness to remove this thought disorder, this trauma from right. myself. So right. when you think of that forgive self, forgive from self, it's the removal of what never belonged as opposed to the old Greek idea of, oh, okay, I'll just let myself yeah. put them off the hook. It's a, it's a, no, it's I think a the most, far bigger the, yep, action required. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you're see what well, you're you're in construction. So it's it's the removal. We're going to dispose of this. That's exactly. what that's what's most important. Like you're saying, wait a minute. That's yeah, forgiveness for yeah. We're we're going to dispose of this uh and as many times as we need to dispose of it. That's forgiveness to as many layers as necessary. Yeah. And and the layers are you know, that's absolutely incredible. Layer after layer. Um, Yay. <laughs> well, thanks for being on so, the path with us. We appreciate you. Well, is that it? I don't. Do I get a sticker or something? I'd like some kind of uh, reciprocity. Uh, I mean, I'm we're, always we're looking, putting you know, a heart it? sticker, a heart <laughs> sticker in the mail as we speak. It's, it's got. <laughs> We just addressed the envelope, and there it comes. It'll be there. Outstanding. <laughs> Thank you. Outstanding in your field. You guys. Yeah, there you hey, go. Amen, brother. That's it. <laughs> Thank you. All right, sir. You have a blessed one. Lots of love. Bye. You too. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. What a sweet journey. And we have another I hand think up. I just heard. Okay, let's say hello. All right. All right. We actually have two hands up. The first one is Magda. Two eight two, you're on the air. We haven't heard this young lady's voice for a while. Welcome. <laughs> my ear has been here, but not always my voice. Thank uh-huh. you for the welcome. Um, the the conversation you're having, and and as an extension of yesterday's conversation, um, stimulated some question in me that um, I'm going to ask you to explain. 
And um, the way we often talk or word um, the idea that we we received injuries, emotional injuries from our parents and other people in our lives at an early stage, <clears throat> early age. Um, it often sounds as if they were very mean and doing it intentionally. And I, so my question is around that. Um, I know for myself, as I've gone back and done my own forgiveness work, I have often found out that the injury I sustained was because I, as a child, had a limited understanding. And so my interpretation of a situation or something that was said um, is what really caused um, the trauma within me, I think. (laughs) And so I'm wondering what you think, what your opinion is about that. Yeah, unless uh, an external, so-called external event Mm -hmm. resonates something untoward in us, it's just going to be a happening. It's not going to be something we're going to be invested in. But if it moves something within us, so I think that there can be, you know, a a real or assumed offense. It can happen in both directions. In many cases, the adult was in their own trauma and pain, probably functioning out of a power person dynamic from their unresolved early lives, and it just gets passed from generation to generation, not of any kind of uh, viciousness or volition, just that's what's in the structure. And when stress occurs, remember when one becomes ultra-stressed, then what happens, and of course, what is one of the most stressful times in a parent's life, but with that small child with so many demands and therefore so many goals on the part of the person, and that overload, when one hits that ultra-stress place, then that's when the power person dynamic kicks in and the power person's voice speaks through the adult and the child, of course, hears what's going on inside themselves and in many cases assumes an offense that wasn't there too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it can, of course, I think it can be either or. Mm-hmm. Or maybe both sometimes. And both, yes. Yeah, right. Yep. Okay. Now that's that's great. That answers my question. Very good. Yeah, I think that's actually what happened with, uh, you know, I've all, often said, you know, my ultimate power person was dad and that it, uh, what he did was leave. And that's what, you know, I would choose to do when I felt ultra-stressed was mm-hmm. to leave. But dad, I think, was just in his own predicament, own trauma or whatever. Um, And it was his way of, I guess, saving himself from losing it. Dad was one of, yeah, he was one of the most uh, gentle souls that you would Mm -hmm. ever meet. And all my life he was that way. But I interpreted him leaving as that he abandoned me. He left me, you know, in a situation instead of taking me with him and, and so I interpreted his action of leaving as personal 
And, you know, I mean, he never told me I do this to survive. But then I took it on, and, and that's, you know, what I ultimately would want to do to, quote, unquote, survive. So I don't think that's there was any intent on his part, but it was my interpretation of it. So, yeah, it's a good way of looking at it, Michael. That's a great example, Jeannie, great example. Yeah, I, and and then later, as we go through life as adults, um, our interpretations <laughs> are applied then to other situations that are similar. That we it's that inner play. roommate that keeps talking. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. Exactly, exactly right. <clears throat> Interpretation is where it is at. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and so we Everybody's continue. got a reality. Right, and, and that's what we apply. Okay, wonderful. Thank you. And um, so you have another caller, and I'm, I'm feeling complete. If you are. All right, dear heart. Have a blessed one. Oh, and you too. Blessings. Bye-bye. All Bye-bye. And it was actually Peter, and he has dropped off, so I don't know if, um, you know, I guess maybe you have to call back in. Oh, there he is. Hi, Peter. Hello. Welcome. Hey, welcome, Hi. sir. Good to hear your voice. How do you be? I'm good, and I could, uh, I can, I will. I'd speak into that, what you just uh, spoke about with Mark. And that was not the reason I wanted to call in, but now here we are. And um, I did some uh, forgiveness this morning, and as of now, I have yet to ever really see any kind of uh, what you will label as um, bad uh, behavior from my parents towards me. And uh, the, um, the thing that came up for me this morning was as a young child, I could really experience the sense of being a young child, seeing my parents having contempt, being condemning in between themselves. And uh, I had no stronger desire or wish than to fix that, to solve that. But I have still, I have never, as of now, I have not gotten in touch with any kind of uh, so-called bad behavior directed towards me. Right. It was just what was happening. What was happening, and I took that on as uh, I talked about, I actually wanted to call in about uh, the Joe conversation yesterday about the power person dynamic, and I can clearly see that that is uh, most definitely the power person dynamic for me, Again, uh, not any kind of ill will directed towards me, but the contempt and the condemning that I was observing, uh, that is the power person dynamic that I experienced. So, uh, and you realize the, that the that inner... Is, just going to throw in the thought, you realize that that inner dialogue has been going on, part of it is the genetic uh, passing on of what the power person or parents haven't resolved. 
is passed genetically to the child, as were the dynamics of the grandparents to the parent and the great-grandparents to the, you know, right on down the line. And the dialogue continues, and we realize that it's all an extension of simply something that needs to be faced and healed and returned to the presence of love. Big time. Uh, I've met, I mean, my grandparents, and uh, I can see so much about contempt and condemning. And uh, unfortunately, I can also see contempt and condemning from me towards uh, my sons. So, uh, big time, unfortunately. Family tradition. Are you familiar with the Hank Williams song, It's a Family Tradition? I am not. Well, look it up on YouTube. Hank Hank Williams, Family Tradition, (laughs) basically, you know, he's Hank Williams. This is Hank Williams Jr. singing. And the question that the song, the lyric asked is, Hank, why do you drink? Why do you blow smoke? Why do you write out every song that you've wrote? And he says, you know, my condition, it's just a family tradition. It's what my family system does. And that's really the part of us that we need to interact with consciously. That's the inner journey that we're talking about. That's the inner dialogue that runs the show from the inside. And until it's questioned yes. and its premises based in hostility or fear are collapsed and removed... It's for most people. It's a tragedy. I'm so willing to uh, face that, and Lord give me strength. And that Indian thing you said, if I remember correctly, they even give age uh, parameters to that. So I think actually they say that at the age of 55, that's when you take on your loincloth to go out and. Uh, into, and, and go into the in a word. So I'll tell Tanya that that I'll start with the long class now and try to go out and to beg. I'm open. And and when we get conscious and we can create relationships that's based in doing that inner work, then relationship just moves to a whole different level and a whole different dynamic that just leads to, to me, it's like appreciation for the fact that another's willing to actually, I mean, when you think of how precious human life is, that, that others are willing to share their lives with us. It's just amazing. Go for it. Good point. I was laughing. It was just a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that gratitude is a a distinct expression of the presence of love that is extremely powerful in the healing process. You said relationship. Uh, so first I thought about like my father, my mother, and or my children, my wife. But it, last night I spoke to uh, Jean 
Rampage for a long time. And, right. Uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. We talked about my, my dad's passing, about other things as well. And the experience I had was this morning was that I'm thinking the conversation we had heightened the vitality within me. So uh, new stuff was surfacing this morning, uh, like <laughs> right on waking up. And uh, it felt like it was, I mean, we had, a, like I said, really good talk and it was uh, focused on the spiritual part. And there was just, uh, that's uh, what I got, that this was from that we together heightened the vitality and some new stuff could surface. Joining with another human being is powerful. Like that. Yeah. Doing more gathering. You know, my vitality meter is at four and yours is at four and we connect. We now have a power level of eight. A whole lot of healing is going to show up if there's willingness. Good. So question on the, from yesterday and also today about the gaslighting. I'm not really familiar with the concept, sort of, but not really. But the thought I had already yesterday and uh, even stronger today, gaslighting, can't you, could you even talk about that concept in the, the Armageddon, the battle between hum, the being and the non-human being? Because, I mean, I believe to some extent, I believe what I've been told or not told, but uh, as what I identify with as my uh, non-being human. And that's kind of what I heard you explain about the gaslighting, someone else telling you of, and then you're going to believe that. Well, there are two, there are two layers of it. And, you know, you can look it up. You know, it's probably on Amazon available for a couple of bucks. Gaslight. And it's a very powerful film. And this man... Um, you know, basically through the whole film, he's systematically destroying his wife's ability to realize who she is as a human being and value herself. And so it's just, you know, feeding her destructive reality after destructive reality after destructive reality. And when you realize that human life is made of love, this whole inner voice that's based in hostility or fear is continuously gaslighting us, telling us story after story after story. And the people around us, when we share that, are like, well, what are you talking about? But that's what that inner, unre the unfaced and unresolved non-being self is one continuous gaslighting story that voids the experience of ourselves as the presence of love. Well, we talked about and that forgiveness is about undoing all of that. Say again? Yeah. You know, I was going to say me and Gene talked about that last night. So why is that? <laughs> why do we listen to that? I mean, why am I going to give up love for this or that or that? 
It is so loud and so strong. Because it is so loud and so strong, and and everybody's doing it. The the message of the culture is conform. Conform. Do what everybody else is doing. Don't walk your own path. Don't live your own truth. Conform. And you wake up and you realize that conforming to this insanity is insane. Now, in the ancient scriptures, they said, said it this way, do not be molded by the world, or you will end up moldy. Don't buy into the world's game. Don't conform to what the world's going to tell you, but live from a state of being so that you're always leading with, literally in your physiology, leading with the active presence of love. I want that. I'm with you, 100%. <laughs> Facing, well, I guess most unwinding, yes undoing every message based in hostility or fear. I've heard you say so many times about the example of that when you share the getting across the point that that thing out there does not cause what I'm experiencing inside of me. And this morning I was doing uh, quite a bit of forgiveness and it seemed like it was all different. Peter was always the, the, the theme, but it was completely different stories. I mean, really completely different stories, but my thoughts, were exactly the same. So it's like the opposite of what you're sharing, but it tells exactly the same thing, that it's not the thing out there that uh, stirs whatever stirs in me. So completely different stories, but my story, my thoughts in connection to that was exactly the same. Yeah, and, and it ties back into, you know, the whole title of the work and the title of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And most people think that that's about, yes, they out there are doing it to me again, and they don't realize that it's, no, my reality structure is set up to bring this interpretation forward again and again and again and again, and it's it's based in the unresolved dynamics of the generation passed on from one power person to the next to the next. And the journey inward is to face the record of that in ourselves and remove it. And that's one of the experiences I had this morning that, because the thought that was the same the whole time was, well, you're lousy towards Peter then, you're lousy, you're no good, you doesn't, do not make the cut, you're just not enough. And it was exactly the same uh, the whole time. And then canceling, 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 and coming down to, I don't know the number, but I now feel, and I say, and then, and about this, I see that. And recognizing being a small child, like I said before previously, uh, that could really recognize that here I am being, I'm, I know that there is something else available 
I love. And my parents are not doing that and wanting with every cell of my being, wanting to fix that. So breathing with you. And it's interesting when you confront how it's so automatically passed to the next generation, isn't it? To undo that inclination is monumental. So like the strongest goal, the goal that was so clear the whole time, I mean, everything from wanting to be the best or just to be perfect, just perfect, and to do was to fix, to bring, to let love reign, uh, R-E-I-E-G-N, like reign, like had love being present. And that was like the only. Nothing else has value. Everything that happened in the first half of life was just a waste of time compared to that journey. And notice that you have sufficient value. Notice that you have sufficient value that you've got a support team of people all over the world right now focused on breathing with and extending love toward Peter in support of this healing dynamic. So we're in this together. Yeah, I would like to think that that's what we all would like to fix. That what's we that is what we all would like to see in the world. Love being the re- love reigning, love being the yeah, reigning as in, as in precipitation as well. And being embraced so, in it. So exactly. extending that embrace, extending that embrace to you right now literally physiologically feeling your structure against mine and just holding you in that space. That's so safe that lets everything open that needs to open. And the only reason we haven't faced it previously is because it wasn't safe enough. And every decision, every choice is part of what builds the energetic structure of our future. And every one, every decision and every choice that was based and came from and reflected some form of hostility or fear can now be undone and replaced with the active presence of love. 
the pain of knowing the answer, not being able to uh, to fix it, for lack of a better word. Isn't it wonderful that you don't have to fix it? All you have to do is allow the love to enter. Presence that was always there to enter the space. And that's what will dissolve that inner voice, that inner dialogue. That's what resolves the generational pain and the generational trauma that just moves from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Until somebody steps up and says... I'm going to start to go in instead of out. (sighs) Holding the space of safety. But defenselessness must save the lies my power, and my safety. Because that's where your power is, too. If I need to defend, I'm attacked. And just breathing with you, the show's going to cut us off any minute now. We'll just let go of the outro and just be in this space holding you, cherishing you, valuing you. For no other reason than the Creator put the breath of life in you. Don't have to do anything to earn it. courage yeah, the pain now seems unsurmountable and I know it's not and, but right now and, it seems like and, it. and it is unsurmountable when you keep allowing the breath to deliver the presence of love that's what dissolves it breath that literally delivers that energy to the cell and flushes it of everything from the past. And when you are healed, you are never healed alone. Millions yet unborn will benefit from the work you do. 
and that you share with the world. It's 